Have you been outbirding? Outbirding with Field Guides is the new birding video series you've been hearing about. The latest episodes from Lima, Peru, Arizona, Brazil, Cape May, and the Prairie Potholes include adventure, conversations with fascinating bird people, and field pointers. Remember, even when you're at home, you can always go outbirding with Field Guides. Join the fun at outbirding.com ABA. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It's the last episode of the month, the last episode of spring, if you ascribe to the meteorological seasons, though really, early June is a good time for late migrants like flycatchers and a few warblers like Connecticut and morning too, so I hope the birding season, spring season lingers into June. And it won't be long before adult tundra breeding shorebirds start heading south again, so enjoy your three weeks of summer before fall migration kicks off. Birding is great that way. It's a This Month in Birding episode, so I won't keep you up here, but I do want to note that Black Birders Week starts up on May 30th. For information on that, check out the Black AF and STEM Collective. There will be a link in the show notes, but you can find it there. There's a lot of cool stuff planned, and I'll note it again next week. But that, that's all the ado. Let's get to the business. This Month in Birding with Sean Milnes, Jordan Rudder, Prabita Saha, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of May 2021. Pelagic birding is fun, one, because you get to see a lot of cool birds and their element on one of the most mysterious ecosystems on the planet, and two, because you never, ever, ever can predict what you might see. Seabirding Pelagics out of Hatteras, North Carolina, Brian Pattison's operation has a reputation for producing the unexpected, and they've done it again. Another bird in the wrong ocean. This time it's wedge-tailed shearwater, a first for North Carolina, a first for the entire Atlantic Ocean, though I do think one kind of snuck across uh, in uh, South Africa, so maybe not the entire Atlantic Ocean. If this sounds like Tahiti petrol from a couple of years ago, it's very similar with the exception that at least wedge-tailed shearwater breeds in the ABA area, though that is Hawaii. It has been seen on several occasions off California, Oregon, but it's considered pretty rare there. It doesn't typically get further north than Baja, California. Wedge-tailed shearwater is common in the Indian Ocean, so it's possible that this bird came around the southern part of Africa into the Atlantic, but those birds are you're usually dark phase, and this one was light phase, like the ones in the tropical Pacific. It's a mind-bender, but cool nonetheless. North Carolina's second first record in as many weeks. Other firsts. Oregon's first record of black vulture was seen in the far southwest Curry County, a long-awaited first record for that state. And in Iowa, the strange eruption of Swainson's warblers in the east results in that state's first record of this sweet-songed southeastern specialty near Ames. That's all I got this week, but to get you up to speed on all the rarity news in the ABA area, check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert on Fridays. That's at aba.org rba. You can also join our rarity-sharing Facebook group, ABA Rare Bird Alert, or follow us on Twitter, at ABA Bird Alert. It is the last Thursday of the month, and that means this month in birding with another great panel of birders and bird opinion havers. We have a panel of returnees this time around, and I am excited to have all of them back. First off, in alphabetical order, he is one of the hosts of the Foul Mouths podcast, a frequent guest here. Hello, Sean Milnes. Hey, thank you for having me back. Great to have you. Uh, next, she is with the American Bird Conservancy and a leading voice for bird names for birds, a new dog mom, among other things. Uh, welcome, Jordan Rudder. So excited to talk about birds with you. Yeah. And third, a science journalist with popular science and a birder, of course, Perbita Saha. Hi, Perbita. Hi, everyone. So it's hard not to talk about birding uh, in May. Most, <laughs> where I am, you know, things have, are starting to taper off, but I'm sure where you are, there you're still in the middle of it. What what have y'all been up to? I'm still waiting to see, which I know I am very privileged to say that, but see a Blackburnian warbler. Oh. The spring has been kind of odd here in the DC area, just off timing and everything, and so still waiting for that Blackburnian. I've had one this year, and uh oddly enough, it was a female bird, which is Ooh. sort of unusual. I don't usually see the female Blackburnians in the spring. Usually it's just the males because they're singing, but I got lucky and, uh, and spotted one a couple of weeks ago, which was cool. Yeah. North, Northeastern Connecticut's been a little bit slow as well. We've had like, it seems like the shorelines had a bunch of uh, like big dumping days of migrants, but we haven't really seen it. Last year we had 
we had a ton of it. So it's been a little bit boring, not boring, re- not really boring, but, <laughs> but boring in that, like, it's been a lot of the same stuff hanging out. I've done a lot of like breeding bird, um, uh, like reconnaissance instead of like, Oh yeah. Out. Connecticut is in, uh, yeah. doing their Atlas this year, right? Yeah. I think this might be the year, the last year for the Atlas. This so, is our first year in North Carolina. So yeah, it's, kind of it's exciting, well. right? Like yeah. I even created my own, um, eBird hotspot with the, with the moderator here. So I had like this one, oh, <laughs> one, one mile stretch <laughs> that I walk every day with the dog to, so I can bird it every day and keep track of like who's singing, who's still here. Oh, that's so, did nice. you name the hotspot after yourself? I named no. I named it after the. I wish <laughs> that would have been all, <laughs> my own Woods. eponym, right? No, I gave yeah. it like a a location name. So it's part of like the Northeast Greenway, um, uh, like canal trails for biking and stuff. So I walked the same stretch. But we got breeding worm eating warblers. So I'm feeling good oh, about cool. myself. Uh, yeah, I would say up here in northern Jersey. Um, it's mostly been my fault. I haven't been getting out as I normally would if I was working in New York City and around Central Park. But spring is kind of power line season for me. Uh, we have a lot of good like right of ways and successional habitat. Yeah, last weekend I went out on a hike and almost got run over by some ATVs, but <laughs> otherwise heard my prairie warblers, which is arguably my favorite warbler and my favorite warbler song. So it is a great song i've not had prairie warbler yet this year but um Mm -hmm. they i have them on my breeding bird survey route that i will probably start running next month in a couple weeks but uh yeah no amazing song great one and they indicate their song to me indicates the presence of some really awesome other birds with really Mm -hmm. cool songs so i love them as an identifier species and stuff yeah you know power line cuts and all that scrubby habitat and stuff you know maybe a white-eyed vireo or something like that so yellow brush to chat yeah or a blue grosbeak or something like that yeah yeah real cool Ooh, can only dream uh (laughs) but yeah and i mean memorial day weekend is coming up and obviously great great time to go birding a couple of my friends and i uh we formed this group called the galbatross project um and since last year we've been making memorial day weekend uh female bird day i know it's three days but you know female birds to serve it and the whole point is to go out and try and identify female birds even though you know the males are kind of um being obnoxiously flashy right now uh (laughs) And it's great. What we're really trying to do is like crowdsource observations on how people, even for species where physically it doesn't, the two sexes don't look that different. There's so many ways to understand female birds through vocalizations and behavior and nesting and all this. Um, So yeah, we're really trying to crowdsource notes on that uh, so that we can get a better understanding of how to distinguish female birds in the field. Um, so hopefully the three of you will help us on that endeavor. Yeah, it, it fits really well with the Atlas project too, because yeah. you know, you're, you're looking for breeding bird behavior. And a lot of that is, you know, not just the male bird singing, but interaction between the female bird and the male bird or female birds carrying food or nesting material or all that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's perfect for those of us who are doing, doing Atlas birding. Some of those warbler species, like black-throated blue warbler, the female is arguably as attractive as the male in it, in those situations too. So I like to find them anyway. Yeah, so let, let's get into it. I want to start off with some global big day news, some spring birding news. Uh, eBird hosted their annual World Migratory Bird Day effort. The idea is to get people to go birding on certain weekends in May, and they make a big deal about co-living all the birds in all the countries. It's sort of a fun thing. And uh, for the first time since they've done it, Columbia, the most bird-rich country in the world did not, you know, win, quote-unquote, such that winning is even a goal. But it's always fun to see which countries pull down a ton of birds. Uh, sort of international bragging rights there. But there's a reason Columbia didn't. Um, several members of Columbia's birding community decided to boycott the Global Big Day to draw attention to the tumultuous situation in the country right now. Uh, it's currently a national strike, uh, some assassinations of environmental leaders, police violence, all exacerbated by COVID. It's a bit of a mess. And just a sort of a back of the napkin explanation about what's going on. And, and please, listeners, if I get any of this incorrect, let me know and I'll correct it in a future episode. When FARC, you know, the paramilitary group, 
and the Colombian government signed that landmark peace agreement several years ago. It was predicated on a lot of things, but maybe most notably, the government would provide economic development to some of the rural parts of the country. Um, for years, there was very little government involvement, and FARC had effectively taken on the responsibilities of the government with all the issues that that sort of entails. And that's where birding fits in, because ecotourism and nature tourism was promoted uh, as a good way to get jobs and money into these parts of the country. And until COVID, that was sort of happening, though not as quickly as many would have liked. Um, and so some birders did not participate in the Global Big Day. Some did. And Colombia lost, quote unquote, to Peru for the first time. And, and perhaps most notably, those birders were disappointed that there was no acknowledgement of that in eBird's big Global Big Day write-up. And, uh, you know, I'm not inclined to ascribe malice where ignorance is more likely. Uh, but they could have given at least a nod to the reason why Colombia was second for the first time instead of first. So that's sort of the news part of it. I think the bigger question is what do we as American, Canadian, European birders owe to the people and the countries that we bird in or travel to? I know that whenever I visit a place, I sort of feel a connection there from that point on. So, you know, it is concerning what's going on down there. I'm curious what y'all thought about the boycott, whether it was effective, what eBird could have done to help promote, you know, what they were trying to do down there. That was a long lead in. Sorry. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I just want to make sure I got it all on the table. Yeah, I think the background was necessary. I agree with the people who surface the efforts of these Colombian birders. Um, this, like, there's so much happening. I mean, there's always a lot happening in the world, but this, these protests in Colombia came so quickly before Israel. Palestine as well. Mm. So I feel like that story has also, you know, shifted attention away from the continued yeah. um, violence in Colombia. It feels so rare, at least here in the U.S., when birders take a political stand, seeing it come out of other countries, but then kind of be ignored by mm -hmm. American birders. It just, it further shows like that we have this aversion to mixing birding with like social justice and politics, which I think that's changing. I mean, we will be talking about that more later this episode, I think. Yeah. But um, it's something we need to keep working on and have a better worldview on. Um, and that includes, like you said, Nate, when we travel to these places and we take advantage of their natural resources and ecotourism. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about how birds don't know borders. Birds you know, travel yeah. beyond this, these cross-country environmental conservation efforts are really important. And I mean, it's, it's important for birders to be aware of that too, at least, you know, from my perspective, you know, I certainly, what's going on in Colombia could potentially affect the birds down there. The government is not able to protect birds in the way that they have in the past. If the development for nature, tourism, uh, lodges, all that stuff gets stalled by whatever way that affects birders going mm -hmm. down there. Obviously, we've seen what's going on in Venezuela which used to be like this big bird tourism destination and absolutely is not anymore. And, you know, Colombia sort of switched places with it. You know, for decades, Colombia was a no-go place and now it's like one of the hottest destinations for ecotourism. Um, it's important to be aware of these things because, you know, there are people down there that we rely on to help show us birds. And uh, yeah, it's, it just feels really important to, to note that. And I, I do think Cornell made a mistake in not, in not doing so. I didn't know that about Venezuela. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy how much those two countries uh, uh, have have switched places for the most part. I can't possibly add on more, uh, especially just additional information uh, that Nate and Perbita said. But so there's the sad news of Gonzalo uh, Cardona, mm -hmm. who was known for the yellow-eared uh, parrot, and he was murdered in January and there were plans to have celebrations and kind of memorial things in Colombia to celebrate and honor him on global big day. And it's so unfortunate that the tense situation for lack of a better phrase had gotten so, so much that that was kind of not, not able to be done in the same way as planned due to other current events. Mm. Um, we're calling it a boycott, correct? Uh, the boycott. That's what they're was, calling it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's just it's just really sad, right? Because we just want to focus on the birds and yeah. so many things right now. People matter, and we need to take care of people too, along with the birds. So yeah, well put. I had this conversation a few times, like the obligation as as like birders traveling to these locations, like what sort of obligation we have 
um, like during the pandemic, when folks were starting to complain about not being able to travel internationally and having to change their international pl- travel plans. And some people were talking about, you know, just going and if they could get a ticket, they would just go and see what happened when they got there. And I was so sort of put off by the the community's like sort of lack of, I don't know, it seemed like lack of decorum in that situation. Like, look at look at like what was going on with COVID and Brazil and places like that. And we could see the potential for such a horrible, horrible reaction. Like how, how many birders can say like traveling that they know for sure that they weren't part of the, the problem of that spread. And now with, with more, you know, civil disruption and things like that in places with government issues with, you know, everything that's going on in Colombia with freaking assassinations and stuff of, I think that, that the conversation needs to be had a little bit more loudly amongst birders, mm-hmm. you know, we need to think about, we, we talked about ethics, right? A lot as birders, birding ethics, owls and, and every other touchy subject that comes up down to like what we wear, but we're willing to just be completely loose with travel. <laughs> And I feel like that just doesn't make sense. I haven't had the opportunity to travel internationally as a birder, but I have traveled internationally in the past. And I, you know, you go in, like Nate said, with this respect and you come out with this connection. And and that should mean more than some lifers. You know, I didn't know about this, this boycott. And I feel a little bit slighted by, you know, institutions that I look up to that have have their have their fingers on the pulse in these situations. I agree with you, Nate. They might have they missed the boat on that one a little bit. And um I definitely think that this uh obligation to the places we travel should be a much louder topic in the ethics world in terms of birding and stuff like that, especially with so many young birders traveling at this point in time. So a lot of these countries in Colombia in particular really is depending on ecotourism as, as mm-hmm. part of one of the pillars of their, you know, post post narcos national identity. Yeah. Uh, and for a good reason. I mean, it, the biodiversity there is truly unreal. Most birds, uh, most orchids, most most all the like a ton of butterflies, like all sorts of cool stuff. And they're doing really great work down there. And I don't mean to like minimize any of that to kind of build out that infrastructure, that ecotourism infrastructure. But um, yeah, it's got to it's got to be you know, partner partnership. Mm-hmm. So we got to, we got to help them when they need it as well. Yeah, absolutely. So as many of you know, especially from the coverage of this very own ABA podcast, there was an April event called a community Congress held by the American Ornithological Society Diversity and Inclusion Committee about bird names. I was fortunate enough to be a panelist and and had some remarks that I gave, and I felt truly honored to be among so many other folks that all had this unity around the issue. We had Ken Kaufman and David Sibley and uh, folks from the Bird Banding Lab and the Breeding Bird Survey and Birds Canada, and we all said, let's do this, basically. Maybe the technicalities are are still to be worked out, but we all said that, right? And that was amazing. And really encouraging news is that uh, it was about a week, a week or so ago that uh, Birdwatching Magazine, huge shout out to Matt Mendenhall, released news that Mike Webster, who's the current president of the AOS, is committing to taking the next step on this which is amazing. (laughs) This is a million step journey that we're all on. And it's really, really exciting to see that um, AOS is is going to move forward. Um, And they're moving forward by exploring a new ad hoc committee uh, to to actually review this issue. It's definitely uh, progress that we should celebrate, Um, but there's still a lot to a lot to learn, a lot to be communicated between AOS and the community, us all. Um, I personally am really curious to see who will be on this new committee. Um, in the article, it does say that they're you know, going to have a good, good diversity makeup of that committee, but I can't wait to hear who the indigenous voices and representative, the young birder, different organizations. So that's something that we all need to stay tuned for. Yeah. In my mind, the idea of sort of an ad hoc committee or maybe a committee that sits alongside the NACC, um, North American Classification Committee, um, that kind of, you know, advises on these things is, was always sort of my ideal situation. 
So it's sort of exciting to see that that is obviously that depends a lot on who's on that committee. But um, I think there's a lot of opportunities there to to bring in a lot of stakeholders, bring in a lot of people, different voices from the birding community into that. Um, and it's a way for them to make their voices heard. I think that's a, it's a good thing. And I'm excited by this leadership's move. Um, another note, um, Judith Scarl is also the new executive director of AOS, and she was a podcast guest, too. So a lot of leadership changes uh, at AOS and uh, all for the best, I think. Public shout out to Judith and that we're totally here and more than willing to talk and excited to to see what direction and continued steps get taken. Um, if I may, I also just wanted to share, because I can right now publicly, that I had no idea that this news was going to drop. Um, <laughs> the the article being shared was news to me as well. Um, I, I've been getting that asked personally that question a lot if I knew that this was coming. And then the other thing that I've been asked a lot is if this is any way connected to my quote performance at the <laughs> April event. And I just want to emphasize that that word performance because I know I, I know I'm super privileged to call all of you friends and, and fellow birders. Um, and I know many folks don't know me, but that was truly me. That was authentic <laughs> yeah, Jordan know, Rudder. Totally. If you have listened to Jordan on this podcast, that is 100% Jordan Rudder. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just, I just want to emphasize that because um, folks then have said, well, then where does this passion come from? And I just want to give a huge shout out to Nate, who has been wow. a, a honestly, one of the early voices for bird names um, mm -hmm. and, and the issue. Um, I want to give a huge shout out to Robert Driver, who wrote the original mm -hmm. proposal. Yeah. Um, you know, like this, I felt like my, my not performance performance <laughs> at the April event <laughs> was, yeah, was me trying to represent all of these people, Nate, Robert, the 2,600 petition signers, the other you know, community members, like, I just really hope that the community knows that I felt entrusted to, to represent them. And I, I really hope I did you proud because that's where all of that comes from. And truly just my love of birds too. Um, I thought you were great, Jordan. I didn't think it was a performance at all. And if it was, well, it was an you. Oscar winning performance. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. But, but truly this is about the, the community. And I just really want to emphasize that it's, it's the community that has gotten us to where, where we are today with this issue. Um, you know, on June 22nd of 2020, that's when we submitted the original letter. Um, so we're almost at the year anniversary of that, but it's, it's the community that has truly taken us through this year. And I just really want to celebrate that. Was performance like a pejorative or not? Because uh, I could see that going either way. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know. I also don't know if it's because the panel was so white and <laughs> so male-driven. I, I don't know if it was because I was so different from the other panelists or not, but hey, that, that's me. Whatever, so. yeah. <laughs> when they released the panel lineup, it, of course, struck me how homogenous you know, some of the speakers were. But at the same time... I mean, it was representative of who's at the top of the birding yeah, community still. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I mean, it's hard because you need to break that and you need to have better representation. But at the same time, it's like, well, that's realistically a sample of the people making these decisions. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know. It, I hope that the committee that would come out of this is an opportunity to yes. reach deeper into the birding community exactly. and pull some voices out. And if that's what comes out of it, then, you know, maybe it accomplished its goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a situation like we, we're the ones that need to break it down and then step aside and let this other committee build it back up again and trust that they're going to do a good job. I am ready for Brood X. Uh, here in New Jersey, they haven't popped up quite yet. I believe maybe beginning of June, but I know Maryland, Virginia, those southern states are getting hammered right now, and I'm extremely jealous. <laughs> um, yeah, so for those who don't know, uh, I'm sure there have been so many news stories about it, but Brood X is um, a group of 
periodical 17-year cicadas. So that means that this brood, um, it was laid and buried underground. Uh, oh no, what's 17 years ago? Oh my God. <laughs> 2000, 2004. 2004. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yay, I was 14 years old then. Oh, I was just out of college. It was... I- <laughs> <laughs> we were so fresh Glorious and young. <laughs> and these cicadas are very fresh, maybe not as young. But I went to the University of Connecticut and we have a uh, cicada researcher in our entomology department, um, Chris Simon. And, you know, I spoke to her before this emergence and she's been studying cicadas like her entire academic life. And there are still so many mysteries, even though like they're so predictable in their Mm -hmm. emergence timings and their growth schedules. And I mean, one of the big mysteries is why do they need 17 years to develop underground when they're going to come out and like their lifespan above ground is just like four weeks, pretty much. Um, Maybe even shorter if a bird gets to them um, (laughs) as they emerge. So if you are in one of the um, eastern states that's going to see this emergence, so the cicadas come out once it hits, um, I believe it's 64 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and they need a little bit of water as a cue as well. When they come out, they are like pale white with bright red eyes and that's because their um, exoskeleton hasn't hardened quite yet so in the next day or two they go through that molt but as they're molting they're very very vulnerable Um, and this is great for birds so Mm -hmm. if you do have a um, particularly cicada busy yard um, it'll be interesting to see you know if the birds flock to it um, and take advantage of that uh, new prey source. Um, But Audubon Magazine did a kind of cool article. uh, I don't know why I said kind of, it's just cool. um, Article about entomologists and ornithologists who've tracked whether there are any dips or spikes in bird populations following these big periodical cicada events. And they used North American breeding bird survey data. And they saw that in some species, like they had a list of 15 species, including very common ones like gray catbirds, brown thrashers, American crows. They saw that the year that the cicadas came out, there were like a small, there were fewer of these birds. Hmm. Um, And they weren't sure if that is because the cicadas are timing, like do the cicadas have some internal knowledge about how bird populations fluctuate? And so over time, they've timed their emergences to when like the birds are less around. That's one, that's one hypothesis at least. The other is that it just has to do with like the years following the cicada emergence these bird populations are going to kind of uh, bloom a little more because they had that, Mm -hmm. you know, additional food source. So maybe it's just comparatively they're lower in the one year where they're still capitalizing on these insects. Um, So anyway, lots to, as birders, there's a lot for us to observe and to understand about this fun new dynamic that's going down this summer. Um, There is a app that entomologists are asking um, community scientists to use. It's called uh, Cicada Safari and it's free. Basically, you just, if you're around an emergence, you can log when it happens, include, you know, multimedia and, you know, there's going to be droves of data for people who want to nerd out about cicadas to um, follow up on for years. That's what I've got so far. I'm excited. Um, I might try eating some cicadas. This has been a hot topic of conversation, but I follow some chefs who've been going down to Virginia to, um, you know, forage for them. And they're like eating them like sashimi, like they're eating them live. <laughs> and oh, I don't know if I'll go that That may be far, too much for me. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm down to try some <laughs> roasted cicadas. I am just a little bit outside of this current Brood X uh, eruption, which mm-hmm. sounds like a 
I don't know, like a Marvel comic supervillain or something. But, <laughs> uh, but I think when we had it in 2013, it was I think like Brood Four. Um, it was two two species of the little. I think they may have been like 13 year cicadas, not 17 year. But you know, the difference is nominal. Um, but I remember like going out and birding, and it's so weird to be in a woodland with all these cicadas because they they sound like a, like an alien spaceship like landing. It's like this weird like <laughs> sound. <laughs> And I was in this woodlot and uh, like the great crested flycatchers and the redheaded woodpeckers were like going nuts, Mm -hmm. like chasing all the cicadas around and eating them and just gorging, uh, which was really cool to see. Uh, And yeah, I I don't know whether or not it really affects their broods. It seems like it should. But uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what the how the data, how the data pans out on that. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even talk about how dominant and overwhelming the sound is going it to be. Is so um, it is wild. It is wild. I don't know if there's anyone out there studying how this, like if it affects the birds just as much as it affects us. Um, I mean, I imagine so. Yeah, that's yeah, an interesting the, point. Yeah, the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. Are, they actually just released an article. I saw it on social media and I can dig it up. But oh, shoot, yeah. The, I think uh, Brian Evans, who's a... Uh, ornithologist there i think he is leading on the project so but that's all i know i don't know i think they're doing the actual data collection it's not as so they're continuing to study whether it affects how birds communicate yeah that's my understanding okay uh so my partner gabriel foley is working on a side project that is a community science based project and it's just crowdsourcing observations of birds eating cicadas Um, there have been previous uh, manuscripts that you can read about like individual species or cases but not widespread like this and I think he said that house sparrows and red-winged blackbirds are like the most documented but the really cool thing is that the form that anyone can use. It's just five questions. Uh, It's for anywhere in the Brood 10 area, so not just Maryland and D.C. And to date, it's only been a few weeks. He already has over 150 submissions from folks, which is awesome. Love love community engagement. Um, And over 30 species of birds, which is amazing, Um, including some first documented observations, which just proves the, like, wealth and power of these projects. Um, so shout out to Dan Lebin because he submitted an observation and photo of the first known documented uh, Lincoln Sparrow in Virginia oh, eating, wow. a, that would eating be a, a cicada. That's quite a mouthful for a Lincoln Sparrow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those, those little uh, periodic cicadas are a little bit smaller than the summer cicadas that we're usually used to, but still, hmm. Lincoln Sparrow is not a big bird. I'm sure Nate will put the link to the form yeah, on, yeah. The, we'll on the podcast the webpage. Um, but yeah, again, if you have any observations, like just know how valuable these are. I mean, if anything, they're periodical cicadas, so we need to take advantage of, of when they're here. You're not going to see them again for another 17 years. Definitely know that you might be grossed out. You might have cicadas everywhere, um, but jump in and, and help other folks learn about them. I would love to see a Rosemary Mosco bird comic based on <laughs> the findings that Gabriel yes. dredges up. Yeah, that's the sort of uh, ornithology crossover that I'm here for. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's aware, everybody that's on social media and everything else in the world has seen this Chicago releases a thousand feral cats to the streets in an effort to clean up the city's rat problem. I have so many thoughts, so (laughs) many feelings, and so many opinions, um, most of which should be... I have to make sure that I'm not swearing um, about it because it it elicits that sort of feeling. Um, First of all, a thousand cats released is ridiculous. Like, aren't there already a thousand feral cats on the streets to to do this, right? Like... We need to add more. Yeah. Um, I'm taking fairly... the jobs from the uh, Chicago cats. You think that they'd be very frustrated. Yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. The, I was like the, the article. Um, it, it was on the Hill. Um, there's a video that accompanies, first of all, and it's a bunch of real cute, like feral cats cleaning themselves, which is, you know, like 
awesome, I guess. Like, it's good for <laughs> if you want to see some cute cats. Um, so apparently Chicago is like the worst city for um, pests, especially like rats and stuff like that. And there's a ton of everybody knows there's feral cat colonies everywhere. But cities seem to be, you know, the worst for it. There's abundant food source and places to to crash and things like that for the cats. Um, property and business owners have to like put in a uh, like a request for a feral cat. And once they they the request is approved like they they agree to providing like the the staples food shelter water all of that for these uh released outdoor cats they're um spayed neutered and and all of that so it's basically just like a really like fancy tnr program that gives the cats a job yeah. but there's no supporting like data that shows that they have any effect cats yeah. on uh, the rat populations so, um, I mean, if you if you're putting them out there to get the rats, why do you need to feed them? Isn't the right? idea that the cats are going to go after the rats? Well, mm-hmm. and this I had not known this before. The point isn't just predation. Like one of I don't know if it was the Hill article or a different article I read. It said that these cats effectively will only catch like one or two rats. But right. it's also apparently it's the pheromone that the cats put out that prevents rats from visiting that site yeah, again in the yeah. future. I read that. I I don't know. I looked at some of the research behind that and it's all like lab-based, very small sample sizes. <laughs> yeah. Not yeah. Nothing you should be dictating urban policy on for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for real. I just, and, and you know, honestly, like, isn't this just like a beacon for a new colony to form like i just i just feel like you know where there's one outdoor cat more follow like especially if they're providing other alternative food sources like mm-hmm. this just 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 feels like like a fancy way of saying we're trying to keep our shelters you know from overflowing and we're yeah. trying to appease the like the cat people and the the animal welfare people and there's so many other reasons why they shouldn't be doing this and they're just sort of like yeah but and here we are <laughs> yeah and the it's just it i ugh, keep your cats inside just stop. i don't understand yeah. it's really frustrating because chicago so of course you know this time of year the birders there are going nuts because right. you know montrose point one of the best birding you know in the southern great lakes yeah uh you know arguably in the country this time of year yeah, I know that they've always had problems with feral cats there. That's always been a concern. Birders mm-hmm. have always had to fight that battle. And now it just feels like, you know, it's even more of a more of a current to kind of fight against. Uh, it's a, it's difficult already. And they're yeah. made more difficult. Like you're putting a government stamp on it. At this yeah, point. Like, right. Yeah, we, yeah. Appro- we approve these massacres. Like, I, <laughs> But I'll also yeah. shout out Monty and Rose because it's time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they're making it work in difficult situations. Well, and speaking of female birds, trying it back to the beginning of the podcast, yeah, you know, nice. we could we could really help these female birds help raise their chicks if we had better cat management, right? Mm-hmm. Like, keep your cats inside, keep your cats in a stroller or a leash when outside. Like, it's baby bird season, right? Like, yeah. let's help, let's help them. Um, and so. If you want more more ideas of how you can keep your cat safely contained inside or outside, you can go to the American Bird Conservancy website at abcbirds.org. <laughs> keep Jordan your cats in a stroller and then put bird stickers on the stroller. Yeah, and then take yeah. photos of the cat in the stroller and post them to Instagram, and you're guaranteed like a ton of followers. Yeah. yeah. There's your win-win. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it should be pointed out that, like, it's been it's become pretty clear that there are other like animals that are affected by this and i know it's bird podcast but like there are small mammals that are starting to show up more and more in suburban and urban environments that are starting to like adapt and these cats are just not doing anything to help us out it's just there there's so much it's so much deeper and i feel like if you have any 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 deep feelings about this just reach out to organizations that support like keeping cats off out inside and get rid of these TNR programs and like make Chicago feel real bad about what they just did. (laughs) I think the way to really gather public support behind managing feral cats is um, showing like the money stream. And I've been hoping to do this here in the Meadowlands of New Jersey, but there's a big feral cat colony and the state uses 
like sports and recreation funds to feed them at Giants Stadium. And then they just, you know, roam free through the wetlands. And um, I used to bird band and they would, there would be feral cats that would come and kill some of the birds in the nets. I feel like if taxpayers knew about that, they would be like, what the hell? (laughs) Why not just, you know, put that money into shelters or adoption programs or something. Um, Right. But yeah, that's like something I personally want to work on. And I don't know, I feel like it could be effective on a larger scale. Totally. Well, and there's cat sanctuaries in Hawaii. They actually have like designated areas that just have like tons and tons of cats and people go and like visit the cats. It's like cat cafes too. That's another thing. So maybe is that what we need to get on is trying to like crowdsource how to make these more popular so that Mm -hmm. these large groups of cats have like a designated safe space for them and then how do they outside safe space i don't know are they walled in how do they yeah yeah well i don't want to make it sound super restrictive because the cats are super happy i can tell you that um (laughs) but it is a very safely contained area that the cats stay in Hey, there's a there's a cat cafe here in uh, Greensboro, and oh, cool. uh, it's like it's like ten bucks to like just hang out there for an hour. Um, it's like that's a money money maker right, right there. People got to get on that. That's what that's what Chicago needs to be doing. Federally sanctioned cat, cat cafes, cafes all over the place. You get the benefits of whatever you know smell keeps the rats away, and the cats are contained. This is you know this is a decades old problem, right? Mm-hmm. And like. Let's get creative. I'm totally flexible. I'm, you know, I think it's it'll definitely take all of us individually, especially for cat owners to to do their part. And I recognize that's a that's a ask, but like we can do this. But then for these larger colonies or massive groups of cats like hey, if someone else has an idea, let's figure out how to try it because this is not working and we need to do something if we're going to help birds and small mammals and just even keep Mm -hmm. the cats safe themselves, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, they're they're in harm's way outside. Mm -hmm. Like, feral cats do not have the happiest life, right? It's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like, there's cars, antifreeze. Like, they have concerns too. Eagles. Coyotes. Oh yeah, eagles are worse. <laughs> yep. So like again, I don't know. I just I guess I'm just really hopeful that like a young birder is gonna be like, you know what? Here's what we're gonna do. And then I wanna like amplify that and try it and do that. Question of the month. There was a paper that came out uh recently attempting to estimate the populations of ninety seven hundred bird species, almost all the bird species. And while the numbers that they came up with were a little outrageous, uh, for instance, it claims that alder flycatcher is the sixth most abundant bird in the world, (laughs) which is the thing I have a hard time buying. (laughs) But uh, it does estimate that there are something on the order of 50 billion individual wild birds on the planet. And with a human population of around 8 billion, that means that there are about six wild birds per individual humans so my question to you this month is which six do you want (laughs) this question was very difficult for me i I didn't know whether to go with like a variety or go with like six canada geese that i could like (laughs) follow along as like a little canada goose army um i feel like there are a lot of options well so just to clarify we are talking about wild birds right because correct because unlike unlike previous experiences the question of the month was known ahead of time so of course i was talking to gabriel about it and he Mm -hmm. was like well what about chickens right because it aren't domesticated chickens actually like the the number one evidently there are something like 25 billion domesticated chickens on the planet so two one chicken for every two wild birds yeah so i just want to clarify that we're talking about wild birds wild birds um and then because then he was like well why don't you have six chickens and like eat um but (laughs) (laughs) that's very far too pragmatic yeah i know so well i i slightly was also pragmatic but more in a I really like superheroes and like yeah, Marvel. Go for it. So I was yeah. thinking of like, okay, if you're gonna have your team, right? Like you want <laughs> you want the best, you want the best like variety of skills and tactics and like what people yeah. are well so it's like in this the case, Avengers, birds. but oh, birds. Yeah. Oh. yeah. 
that yes and i i got a lot of judgy eyes um from from someone while i was <laughs> no i hear you this is exactly what i had in mind especially because i picked six different species that i've never seen before <laughs> so, <Fair enough. laughs> but i feel like i have a really nice variety that i feel like i could you know be an avenger with here and yes. go you know use the birds be the to help professor the x to this uh, so this x-men team so here are my six expert team I got Shoebill. Yeah, definitely. Harpy Eagle. Yeah. Wandering Albatross. Going big, Jordan. Bird of Paradise Spa. Because again, I haven't <laughs> seen one, so I can't possibly pick one. Um, yeah. And then I also got to be Western Hemisphere proud and go with Hummingbird Spa. I'm thinking more of like, you know, one of the cuter ones from South America that has like the really awesome name, like Puffleg or like yeah. racket tail or star frontlet or something. And then yeah. again, thinking of my team, what are they bringing a bower bird? Cause you know yeah. that they're always going to have like what you need in, in your moment of need. So <laughs> yeah, it's like James Bond. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So those are my six. And yeah. I really Smart. hope that at least I get to see them one day. Yeah. I, so for my six, I didn't go with, um, I didn't go for like the superhero team. I didn't even think of that. I don't understand. I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but um, I just went with stuff that I think is like attractive or, or I don't know. Just these are the birds that I would want in my crew, like on a Saturday night, I guess. Um, <laughs> that's more where I was going with this. Like, who do I just want to hang out with? Um, so my top ones or my first Canada warbler. It's my favorite bird. I nice, just want yeah. one hanging around. You know, they tend to stay low anyway, so I feel like we'd get along. Um, I want a booted racket tail because name, the yep. show, like everything about them, those tails, you know, Jordan's dead on with that one. Broadwing talk to my favorite, like hawk. We have them around and I, I'm familiar with them and I feel like we probably have a good rapport. Um, great Bustard because... <laughs> They're sick. Like, <laughs> I just want to open. I just want to look out my window in the morning. And be like, oh hey, what's up, man? Um, <laughs> just hanging out. Uh, Yellow-bellied flycatcher, because who doesn't want somebody taking care of the the gnats and the mosquitoes? Um, and that's my favorite impid, uh, as, purely because if they have a yellow throat, I know what you are. <laughs> I don't have to listen to this <laughs> thing. And then winter wren, because they that song is just so cool and. Before I was even a birder, I, I was a, I, you know, I used to go rock climbing a ton and I just hear them all the time going rock climbing and stuff like that. And I never knew what they were, but That's I was cool. always just felt sort of like comfortable because they were singing. And so I would, I would love to have that song hanging around all the time. Yep. So Good my one. Six. Perbedia, do you need a little more time? Uh, I think I got it. I'm okay. trying to think more on like a, conservation Noah's Ark kind of perspective. All right, all right. I like these differing perspectives. Yeah, like what are the rarest birds that just need to be like squirreled away and protected for the rest of humanity's time? Uh, I guess like California condor, although they're, you know, they're making a good resurgence. Hanging out on people's decks these days. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. That photo was amazing. Um, Yeah. And I know like the Yurok tribe and other indigenous groups out on the West coast have some really great reintroduction programs, but yeah, I think I'd, I'd take a California condor. Um, What else is super endangered? Uh, Stressman's bristle front. Sorry. But that's okay. That that one. There's that one. <laughs> is that South American? Yes, it is. It's in Brazil, and I especially nice. I couldn't help myself but interject because there's only one known individual, and it's a <gasps> female. Oh my god! Oh wait, I think you and I that's talked perfect. about this bird. Yeah. We did a story when I was still working at Audubon, but um, yeah, okay, that one, the bristle front. That sounds great. Um, Maybe a spoon-billed sandpiper. They're so mm-hmm. cute when they're babies. Oh, no. What else? Um, what are we at? I think we're at... That's three. That's only three. three. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll take a... like a, uh, Oh, what is the... Um, is it Florida grasshopper sparrow? Oh, yeah. Yep. yep. Um, those are... Yeah, those are in tight... Those are in a tight spot right now. Um, 
I think I'll just have to take a secretary bird though, just because <laughs> just for the shenanigans, like yeah. that bird would have my back if I need it. 100%. 100%. I like um, that none of us have picked any of the most Instagrammable birds. Yeah. I, I also oh, can't the, help the frog but, mouth. Yep. I also the can't help but interject with that article that came out. <laughs> so clearly we all have different tactics than being influencers on instagram i'll take a frog mouth i'm adding a frog mouth to my list uh, they're pretty join. neat they're pretty yeah. neat. yeah what's your list name uh so i'm going with one black cat petrol okay. just because i think they're cool uh one prairie warbler yes because uh I, I i do really like them uh the tawny frog mouth for instagram for the likes <laughs> And uh, three Carolina chickadees, because I feel like you can't have just one. <laughs> they got to kind of be a crew. Can um, one of them be a hybrid black captain? Yes, Carolina? maybe. Yeah, okay. definitely. Okay. Two, yeah, two Carolina chickadees and one hybrid, just to keep people guessing. <laughs> so those are mine. That's good. Yeah, it's a good list. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you so much, Sean and Perbita and Jordan, for, for joining me today. I hope. Your breeding bird season, uh, which starts in, I guess, June and already started now, um, is great. And uh, good luck on your on your female bird weekend, Perbita. And, and, and if you want to you know, follow along on all the stuff that we talked about, all that will be in the show notes. And of course, obviously, all the links to the various places where you can find these great people. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Here's to the birds. Thank you. What a fun morning. Yeah, thank you. Enjoy the rest of migration. American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting the podcast by joining the ABA. Members get a lot of cool stuff like our magazines, discounts to our partners, and opportunities to travel with us. We're actually did an event this past week. You can get more information at aba.org slash join. I do have some shout outs to make this week to Dave and Linda Bryan of Overland Park, Kansas, Tania Scheinman of Seattle, Washington, Joseph Tuval of Henderson, Nevada, Scott Fincham of Roanoke, Virginia, Tony Blake of Edgware, UK, Scott and Lori Ann Milne of London, Ontario, John Benson of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Bailey Mitchell of Muskegon, Michigan, Lewis, Susie, Josh, and Mark Yerlibin of Woodmere, New York, and Wes Donnell of Littleton, Colorado, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for that to all of you. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who always wondered about whether, you know, sandpipers and plovers can be found on Asgard and whether Asgardians would then refer to these birds as Thorbirds. Technical production is by John Lowry, who understands that it was inevitable that the Falcon Sam Wilson would become Steve Rogers' replacement, but figured they would brand him something like Captain American Kestrel. Seems like it's a better fit. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who have a spinoff in place where Herring, Great Blackbacked, Ringbilled, and Western become the guardians of the galaxy. You can find us online at ABA.org and on the various social medias as American Birding Association or ABA. So I am imagining giant structure of sticks and flowers decorated with various superhero action figures. There's Iron Man, there's the Hulk, there's Black Widow all stuck you know, very carefully into the sticks and at the entrance a very proud New Guinea songbird in front of his Avengers Bower. Questions, comments, questions can come to podcast.eba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, get vaccinated. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>